The One in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Welcome to Thorn in Your Side. My name's Michael. I go by M on the internet. I'm feeling quite tired and um, a little bit stressed at the moment because I've, well, I mean, the good news is, is that I've, I've still got a job. It's been uh, my two-year anniversary at my workplace, and you celebrate that by wondering whether your contract gets renewed. And I find out in the last couple of days that, in fact, it got renewed. So... I am cheering and very happy, but at the same time, tired and wishing for more sustainable working structural system things. Yeah, I'll just let my mixer board do all the celebration for me. Technocracy. Today I've got with me, and I'm very excited about this because I've been trying to to nail this guy down for a little while now. He's a very busy guy. He does the impossible within student politics. Uh, We can talk a bit more about that, I think. Uh, I would like to introduce Swapnik, who is the president of the University of Sydney SRC. Welcome, Swapnik. Ah, thanks for having me. I'll just quickly correct the record. I'm not the president till December 1st. Ah. Yeah, I'm the president-elect for now. You're the president-elect. Yeah, if that makes any difference. Okay. Uh, But, you know... Almost there. <laughs> uh, do, do you have to like recruit a, a, a handover committee to, to, to come in and, and do all that stuff that they do in America? No, I'd love to have an inauguration, but unfortunately <laughs> it's just been Liam, the past president and a good friend of mine, uh, just sitting me down in rooms and telling me about all the committees I'm on okay, and uh, all the things that I need to sort out. But oh. it's, been, it's been a good handover so far and I'm, I'm ready to pick it up on December 1st as soon as, as, soon as I, I get into the office. Great. Okay. Well, I'm still going to call you president. Yeah, it's all right. I don't mind. President Swapnik. So is this your first term? Uh, yeah. Um, most people tend to only have one term. Okay. Uh, I mean, with students, I think most people are kind of content with being in the office for about a year before they move on and continue with their studies. Yep. Um, you've also got to get elected multiple times if you want to run multiple times. Seems like a lot of stress. I wouldn't really want to put myself through it. I got a little bit lucky this year, you know, through the through the powers of negotiations and whatnot. I managed to run unopposed for the presidency. Ah, so negotiations. Yeah, I mean, it was a real Soviet-style election. Vote one for number one type thing. Okay, well, so <laughs> we can talk a little bit about that, but it has been a bit difficult to track you down because of this election stuff. So, how long have you been the president-elect for? Well, I guess I was formally announced about a month and a half ago. As soon as the nominations closed, Mm. there were no other nominations. So by default, I was the president-elect. The elections for the council, the SRC council, which is, if I wanted to analogise it, kind of like my parliament, finished 
maybe a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember the exact date. Mm. And then last night we were able to have our representatives elect meeting where all of the office bearers of the SRC are confirmed. All right. So with the election, all the office bearing roles were up for election. Is that correct? Yeah. So the way it usually works is all the councillors get elected in a broad, just kind of regular election. Yeah. And then at the representatives elect meeting, the positions are voted on. Okay. And usually it's among the left factions and among the left groups, the positions are sort of predetermined and arranged so that according to what people's particular strengths are, they can get where they need to go. Yep. <laughs> so it's um, this very classical student activism thing where um, negotiations and deals are made and yeah. then perhaps there might be some voting afterwards. Yeah, uh, I'm not a fan of it by any means. It's just there's no real comparative situation here. The I guess the counterfactual on that is that none of us do any deals and then because we all can't coordinate our votes, the Liberals get into all the positions. Mm. Um, so I would rather have those deals and confirm the best activist socialist people for the positions than have no deals at all and have the Liberals get up and everything. So you see it as a necessary evil? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. The next burning question I have there, Swapnik, is how the hell do you keep the Labor people out? Uh, I guess we didn't keep all of them out. We got a couple of Labor people in. For yeah. example, one of the general secretaries will be from the Labor left. Okay. A um, couple of people floating around in minor positions. But I think the, the Labor Party, uh, particularly young Labor on campus, is kind of a dying political project. I think students, particularly those who are engaged in student politics, and that's by no means a, a vast majority of students, have kind of recognised that at the macro level, Labourite politics have failed pretty heavily. And at the student level, the Labour Party is unable to offer anything new. The activist left is always the ones that are going to deliver on the promises. They're the ones with the most institutional knowledge. We're also the ones with the most social connections and friendships across campus. Mm. Kind of by extension by that, we get elected pretty, you know, we, get, we had a pretty large electoral mandate relative to everyone else. So there's a few things going on there. So back when I did my undergrad, and um, this is about 20 years ago, you had Labour students everywhere. Sure. Um, because... Uh, I don't know what it's like these days because what you just described to me seems to have turned it on its head. But um, but back in my day, my student activism experience, a lot of kids became Labor students because that was the, the way one got their political apprenticeship. You joined the group back then was called National Organisation of Labor Students or NOLS. You would join that or they would join that. They would do their best to campaign and get into SRC roles. I would argue that a lot of the energy towards uh, getting up on ticket actually is actually more energy with that than there was with the actual activism. They get in and then they hold the position and then from there it's like, well, how do things progress? You join the National Union of Students, you finish your degree, perhaps go to join the union. You see there's a career progression. Sure, yeah. From what you're explaining to me, there doesn't seem to be that incentive anymore. Yeah, and I mean, I think the, the labour machine that you were describing in your day has kind of broken down. How um, did it break down, Swapnik? Let me get my popcorn first. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess the big thing that was that broke down the labour machine was VSU. Ah! Voluntary Student Unionism. Okay. Uh, and for if any of your listeners don't know what that is, it was just that student unions can't charge their own dues to students anymore. Subsequent labour governments 
put in a thing called the student services and amenities fee. We get all of our money from the university now rather than charging it independently. So that some of that money is conditional. What that meant is that a lot of the money that was going to the National Union students has kind of fallen away. It's a bit of more of a bare bones organisation. So what we've seen then perhaps over the last decade is an offset of student resources from the NUS to student councils themselves. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, and I think the University of Sydney SRC is kind of the vanguard across national student unions. We're pretty well resourced. We're not by any means a rich organisation. We barely scrape by every year. But we have just enough resources that we're able to engage in the most effective activism. And so the second reason why the labour machine broke down was precisely that when the balance of power shifted from the NUS to student councils, people realised that labourites weren't really doing much with the student union. And I mean, this is a relatively new development in terms of the breakdown of the labour machine. When I started my undergrad in 2018... That was kind of the, the death of it. There had been Labor SRC presidents for a couple of years before me, before I started uni. But right about that time, I think the activist left really did take off on campus. And we very narrowly won the presidency in 2017 against a liberal ticket. And after that, I think we were able to demonstrate to students pretty effectively that we were the ones who were best to be in control of the student union we were the ones that were doing the most work, that had the most institutional knowledge. And over time, people did realise that. Not as many people joined the Labour factions. Not as many people voted for Labour. And the balance of power shifted away from them and towards us. And that machine that you were describing, that stable process from SRC to NUS to a union job or a staffer job. A career. A career, yeah. Kind of requires that you win elections. And the Labourites haven't been very good at winning elections. so. And then, yeah, all the gears fall out of the machine and therefore no perpetual motion. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It is very interesting there, Swapnik. So from what I'm gathering out of that is is that I think how Labour people tended to hold their power politically was through holding some sway within institutions. So that became a bit, I think, decentralised there with that change from, well, I guess a, a shift of power then from more monolithic central places like the NUS to places like the student campuses or the student representative councils. The other thing there, Swapnik, you are mentioning to me as well is that you found more competition than with Liberal students. I know that a little while ago when we were just starting this recording, you were saying that you get a lot of votes through people knowing about your presence. So would you say that these days campus life goes a long way towards deciding student elections? I would say so, yeah. I guess the historical moment that we're in now is one in which students have broadly been depoliticised. The difference between now and even, say, the 90s and going back to the 60s and 70s was that back then students almost formed kind of like a quasi-class. Most people lived close to campus or had student accommodation. They didn't necessarily work. If they did, that was secondary to their education. Whereas these days, education is just transactional. You come in, you do your classes, you leave. So it's hard to create a political culture where people don't necessarily see some kind of common interest between themselves. Marx describes a class in itself rather than a class for itself. So Students aren't necessarily a class for themselves. Yeah, and you don't have so much time these days. Like, there's no real time or opportunity to basically fuck around on campus. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, people have a lot more intense study loads. 
people work a lot more. And I guess what I'm trying to build up to is to say that, of course, we're making political arguments to students, but that's not so much happening at the level of the, the way that it used to. It's more that you're forming interpersonal relationships, you're getting involved with student activism, and then you're slowly inculcating and bringing people into these circles and exposing them to activist and radical politics and trying to form that common interest among students rather than presupposing that it exists and then appealing on that basis. What does that work look like with reaching and connecting with students these days? Because, like I said, no one's really fucking around on campus anymore. You've also mentioned, though, Swapnik, that there isn't so much of a political environment now as there was in the past. I might disagree with that. Perhaps the political environment has changed, the dynamic has changed, and you guys have adjusted to that. Yeah, I might just caveat that and say that I think this year there's definitely been a palatable change Mm. with the the recent cuts to education and whatnot. Mm. I think a lot of students have found themselves in a position where they empathise and see themselves in relation to other students, particularly because it's a vast amount of degrees that are having their, their fees increased. Mm. And then those degrees that are not having their fees increased will see their funding reduced. And so there's sort of broad unity against the fee hikes and cuts to staff that are happening, you know, imposed by the university management, the general austerity. Has there been whispers about moving to a trimester system in your uni? Well, there was a proposal to move to a 12-week semester. I think that may have been trying to lay the groundwork for a trimester, but very narrowly it was defeated in the academic board. Thankfully, due to the hard work of of Liam, the previous president, who was able to sort of put together a winning coalition of people on the board, including like staff reps and union reps and student reps, just to to get the, the proposal voted down. So you would claim that as a student activist victory? In a very narrow sense, yes. It was kind of imposed at the last second, just thrown onto the table and showed up in an academic board meeting and then suddenly everyone heard about it. And then the next time we heard about it was three hours later being like, oh, it's been defeated. Yeah, um, no, we, I think you, um, you had to do some very hard and fast work there to, to make sure it was public knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't take credit for it at all. It was, it was the work of student media and the work of, of Liam and people like that work of the union who were able to to defeat that proposal yeah but yeah i think that was trying to lay the groundwork for a trimester system i have no have no real evidence for that but i think a 12-week semester makes it easier to then subsequently move to say a 10-week trimester when did that happen again not that long ago maybe two months ago because mm. because of all the covid stuff this semester has been reduced to 12 weeks yep so that staff could have could have had a little bit more time to prepare yep um and then on that basis, the uni management wanted to say, yeah, let's, let's move it to 12 weeks permanently. Okay, because in this uni where we're recording our episode, the University of New South Wales, where I'm continuing to use a, a pretty freaking sweet table that I found in here, and my uni card is still allowing me to do it. Um, there's been a trimester system here for, I think, since last year. The thing that I'm a bit worried about, well, I guess there's two things here, is that one, the SRC is heavily laden with Labor people. So I think there's going to be very much an acceptance that the move to a trimester system was an inevitability. I don't think there's a scope of resistance like what you guys enjoyed. Second thing is, is that it sets a precedent where if one major university can adopt such a system, then other unis will think, well, 
we could do that too. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I will say this. Despite the fact that broadly students are depoliticized, Sydney University enjoys perhaps the most robust student political culture that there is. I mean, we have by far the most hotly contested student elections. We have regular rallies and protests and activism. We have engagement with the student union. We have political arguments. I don't mean to give the impression that those don't exist at all. They just maybe exist less than what they used to. And I think that culture is changing quite a bit compared to somewhere like UNSW where there's kind of a hegemony of the labour hacks. Yeah, it's nice to hear. So just getting back to that idea of connection swapniks. So, I mean, of course, there is that idea that if you have a whole bunch of actions and a whole bunch of organising and political outcomes and vibrant student activism and all of that, then that will definitely bring people on board. But how does connection work? Because you're saying that there was a little while ago everything was quite apolitical. In the last year or so, things are quite political. I feel that connection there is key. So would you be able to describe a bit what your conscious strategy was towards connecting with students? Sure. I think one of the main things is that people historically, uh, when I say historically, I mean in the past like five years or so, people saw activism on campus and people didn't really engage with it because they often saw it as disconnecting. And there was kind of a core group of student activists that would engage in these kind of struggles and Um, There was a lot of engagement with student elections, not so much on the activism side. But over time, I think what the activist left has done really well is things as simple as just going out onto Eastern Avenue and leafleting for actions, being able to... Oh, sorry, just to qualify that one, Swapnik, Eastern Avenue, is that a major road in University of Sydney? Yeah, so Eastern Avenue is the main walkway. Okay, it's all paved and it's actually just for pedestrians, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So just being on major thoroughfares and leafleting and building consciousness about actions among students. Secondly, just like what you said earlier, engaging in a vast amount of actions, kind of like a propaganda of the deed type thing. Mm. But I think thirdly is a, a very conscious attempt that there needs to be mass outreach among parts of the student body that previously didn't engage with the left or didn't engage with student activism so actually trying consciously to win over and talk to engineering students or science students trying to talk to first year students and involve them in the SRC and its actions and how do you do that you walk up and down eastern avenue or it's a whole bunch of variables for example like making friends with people or like having friends or making friends with people from particular disciplines and particular segments of the student population and using them as as a springboard to expand its involvement in like student societies and things that would otherwise be considered quote-unquote apolitical Um, it's a matter of leveraging interpersonal connections as well to just be like well you know bring three mates to the next protest bring five mates to the next protest i'm just going to send a message around to all my friends to say hey this is on tomorrow if you want to come feel free to I'm happy to hang around with you if you've never been to a protest. I think maybe the fourth thing was kind of objective circumstances, which is that a lot of people, like I said, kind of got radicalised and rebuilt their understanding of themselves as students in response to these fee cuts and hikes and whatnot. And so that did a lot of the legwork for us because we were simply able to capitalise on that momentum from people being pretty pissed off at the government. Yeah, there's definitely an immediate economic impact when stuff like that happens, isn't there? Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
and students work more these days compared to my generation. Here I am sounding like a privileged piece of shit, but I've just got to disclose that back when I was doing my undergrad, at one point I was juggling three jobs uh, as well as my studies. I, I studied at Western Sydney University or University of Western Sydney as it was known then. It was a common story, even at that time, that a student would juggle their study with their work. The inner city unis at that time, not so much. There was that luxury of study, having the youth study, the youth pension, I suppose, <laughs> and having that space and agency to really get involved in activism and, and getting a sense of one's politics. But, totally, yeah. But I would say, though, that I think in this day and age, you guys might necessarily have that luxury. Would that be fair to say? I mean, a lot of people, like you said, do work a lot. And I guess it's it's almost quite postmodern in a sense. The overwhelming meta-narrative of being a student has been fractured and VSU really decimated a lot of key aspects of the student experience. So just, for example, being able to go to student society events and get free drinks and whatnot hmm. couldn't happen anymore because VSU cut a lot of the funding from student societies. And so students lost that part of that common experience and they also have to work a lot more. Cost of living pressures have increased. Students aren't able to move out closer to uni anymore because rent and whatnot are just totally exorbitant, particularly around Sydney University. Welfare is not really enough to get by on considering how much cost of living is these days. And because if you live about an hour away from the university, it's hard for you to stick around until 11.30 or 12 on a, on a weekday just to shoot the shit with people and have a chat and you know, have some drinks and whatnot because you've got to get home and you've got to go to work in the morning. Whereas I think previous generations of students had a little bit more of the luxury of like being able to live around and maybe not juggle as many of those commitments. The other thing is that these days for people that want a job, there's so many hoops you have to jump through as a student. You've got to get all these credentials, you need to do all these internships and you need to compete with one another for a limited amount of positions and so people spend a lot of time just trying to fight over the scraps that, that are left to them about internships and whatnot. Even a, a more apparent first step is that idea that the first step into the labour market is often casual work. Yeah, totally. Most people get out of uni and get into quite precarious, casualised work anyway. While they're at uni, they're involved in casualised, precarious work. And if you're a postgraduate student who's working after university... You're probably going to have a lot of your wages stolen. There's been a lot of controversy recently coming out about serious wage theft scandals across major Australian universities. And the, the net effect of all of these developments is that students find it hard to engage with each other and to, to find common ground. A lot of the work that we've been doing has been to recreate and produce the conditions, even though they may not exist, for finding some kind of student solidarity, at least in my opinion. Hmm. How much does social media play in this swap, Nick? I think quite a huge role. Hmm. I think social media is the key to a lot of our electoral successes as the left hmm. and also a key in how we're able to mobilise students. One of the really powerful tactics that we had for recent protests was setting up faculty contingents to each protest. So Faculty contingents? Yeah. I have so not heard that before. Tell me more about this tactic, swap, Nick. To, to get around the COVID restrictions, you needed groups of 20 or under people together. And so the strategy that was come up with in the education action movement was to have contingents to protests that would organise at different places around campus and converge, each of which was for a faculty. 
So okay. you'd have political economy contingent, you'd have a law contingent, you'd have a science contingent, you'd have a medical science contingent. And that disperses the mass and that yeah. maintains social distancing. Exactly. And that was really good because at each of those contingents, there would be speakers who were, say, law students or political economy students or tutors or whatever. And it was really able to energise people because they at least already had that prior shared group collective understanding of being a student of a particular faculty or school. So if you're a political economy student and there's a protest where they're calling on political economy students to join, that's probably more of a motivating thing. We were able to set up these Facebook events and send out mass invites and post in Facebook groups. And that was really, really able to boost participation in rallies and participations in activism more broadly. And you can do live feeds, and that's how everyone was able to keep an eye on what was going on in different faculties? Yeah, pretty much. Like, we'd have messages going all the time, even just to be like, where are we meeting? How's everything going? What's you know the police presence looking like? Things wow. of that nature. It's really effective to get around some of those coordination problems that you might otherwise have. You've responded to it. That could have easily been put in the two art basking pandemic conditions. Yeah, and I mean, full credit goes to the people that have been leading the charge on this. I particularly want to give a shout out to Cumberland and mine, Jazz. She was the education officer this year at Sydney University. Okay. Uh, it was pretty instrumental in getting all of these things off the ground. And the other thing with social media is that we're able to have broad organising meetings over platforms like Zoom. We're able to set up chats and Facebook groups where logistics can be planned out. But people can more generally just have a, a stake in the organisation of protests and rallies and feel like they have some kind of democratic enfranchisement within the scope of the education movement itself. Is WhatsApp and Signal and that sort of thing as well? Yeah, of course. But coordinating some of the more sensitive aspects of protests and whatnot. Signals, I think, usually the way to go. See, what strikes me is that you've struck this very good balance between mediums and doing stuff digitally and face-to-face and coordinating all of that. It's not a case of, oh, let's just do this face-to-face stuff over here and we'll have a bit of a WhatsApp group over here and then these people over here might, might create some sort of Discord group. There seems to be some real effort to work out how all of that knits together on the basis of what uses and strengths each of those forums and spaces seem to have. Yeah, without that a be doubt. Fair? Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And I think one thing that we've done quite well this year is also striking a balance between, you know, having a core group of organisers who are able to, because of dedication and time and whatnot, work out the logistics and have broad-based organising meetings where there's mass participation. And, you know, that leads itself to conflict quite often between different proposals, different political groupings, things of that nature. And how do you manage that? Look, I think we just got to play it by ear most of the time. Mm. It's often the case that we won't always agree to things. It's about principled compromise, in my opinion, trying to find common ground between different proposals or even trying to find ways in which... Multiple proposals can be enacted at the same time. But I think for the most part, all of the the activist left groupings and factions have had pretty broad buy-in into the education campaign and therefore there's some vested interest in making sure that it doesn't all fall apart. I think as well, what we've done really well is that the SRC has a collective structure, so kind of like working groups. Some of them are on an identity basis, so like there's a queer collective and an 
ethnocultural and women's and disabilities and whatnot. By far the biggest one is the Education Action Group, which is just kind of like a broad forum associated with the SRC that's chaired by the education officers. So that doesn't itself have a, have a political life of its own beyond just being a forum in which different activist groups can gather and come together and propose initiatives and whatnot. So that gets around some of those problems a little bit. Yeah, I remember back when I was an undergrad, probably one of the bigger political moments of my time then was a two-week occupation at the Bankstown campus. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that was the stuff of legend, really. Oh, cool. Okay, I, I think it's, it's still floating around the, the student movement. Okay. Uh, at See, least among like, those who've, who've, who've read a little bit. I mean, I'm, I... Yeah, like a, everyone who, who was involved in that, like they were really jacked and <laughs> had superpowers like the Avengers. Yeah. And we had lightning bolts, like, coming out of our butt. <laughs> wow, I, yeah, it's been 20 years. Like, it's, it's awesome that, that that stuff is still stuck. But why I bring that up is that the success of that particular action was there was some very hard and fast organising at the start on how to bring people together into different groups. So you had people controlling media, people working out the marshalling when you're occupying a student services centre, all that sort of stuff. There was even one group that was uh, in charge of making sure that they connect with the community and that meant... So have you been to the Bankstown campus? Um, I haven't in a long time. I've been there... I've been there before. I haven't been around for okay. probably like seven or eight years. Well, anyway, my, my point there is that it's in an industrial estate. So there was a community... I think they're getting rid of it now, actually. Yeah, there's rumours about that. At least it's a very different beast to what it was back 20 years ago. There is no student centre there anymore. You do all this stuff online. You have an app. They learn their lesson, really. Yeah. With technological increase, it's like, whew, we don't have to worry about pot student politics anymore. Like The place is a very sterile place now. My story there is that this community subcommittee, and that was part of that occupation, they would reach out to the different factories and the different union affiliates wow. within those factories. And I think that's where it got a lot of strength, I think, over those two weeks because where the uni administration, I think, began to shit a brick was on the realisation that this wasn't just limited to a bunch of students. It encompassed students that weren't necessarily involved in activism, like you didn't have the hack so much. You also had involvement from different sections of community. You also had the attention of the blue-collar workers in the factories nearby so there was a diversity of people involved and you even had the security guards who were actually giving us warnings if the cops were going to arrive so we even had the security guards on side with us so a diversity of people that were on board with it i guess where i'm going with this tangent there swapnik is that is there some parallels there with what you guys do with the way that you organize things that there is that diversity if there is that connection and intersectional approach to other Groups, social groups, organisations, people, so people outside of the uni bubble, basically. Yeah, I think we try to. We try all the time to try and get union support. Mm. Doesn't always happen, but I think that's a, a big priority for a lot of us, particularly me. The Enterprise Bargaining Agreement at the University of Sydney set to expire next year, mm. so I'm sure the SRC is going to take a front and centre role in what is almost certainly going to be a protected industrial action. I think one thing that we've done fantastically this year, and again, full credit to the education officers and to Jazz particularly and to people within the SRC and Liam, is that we've done really well at getting broad media coverage. There's always a perception that student activism and student politics is sort of a fringe tendency for kind of weird losers on campus. 
it's very easy to stigmatize, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think we've done a fantastic job in actually demonstrating that, no, these are just ordinary students who are very interested in not only fighting for a better education, but actually fighting for a better world. And national media coverage has been really helpful, I think, in giving us a little bit of legitimacy in wider society. One thing, and I mean, this is quite sad that it's what it took, was that uh, a couple of friends of mine, I was, I'm was, i a law student and we're, we were involved in a group called Law Against the Cuts and we brought out Professor Simon Rice, who's in Order of Australia, who has done a lot of work on administrative law and abuses of police powers and things of that nature uh, to, to just kind of be a legal observer. So he came out and he walked around the protest and he was just making sure that police weren't abusing their powers too much. And the end result was that the police knocked him on his ass. There was a lot of publicity I've heard as the layperson all of this that there was an amount of police violence at these actions. Exactly. And I think it's awful what police were doing to students and how many fines were being issued and people were being brutalised and shoved off the road. But really when they assaulted Simon Rice, what they did was demonstrate that there's a broad support around this cause, that we should have the right to protest, that these cuts themselves are despicable, and that an order of Australia, Simon Rice, someone with perhaps the most institutional legitimacy that you can think about, was on our side, mm. and he was brutalised by the police. And that national media attention was fantastic for us in galvanising people around the cause. And it really, really inspired people to come out for future actions as well. And what happens in future actions, Swapnik? Did the police back off a bit? They definitely learnt their lesson in terms of the, from the PR angle. They were still quite brutal, but less so than usual. Um, we also won, excuse me, the, the right to protest in groups of under 500. So that was a really big concession that I think particularly the student movement and the Black Lives Matter protests were able to, to get out from the government. Just the democratic right to, to free expression and to, to political action. I think as well what was really good with and our response to this police violence was that we were actually just able to frame it as a civil liberties kind of question. I think there was a lot of buy-in from otherwise quite civil libertarian people who, even if they were kind of ambivalent to the nature of the protest, weren't really involved with student movement or universities that was long past them, were seriously concerned about what the suppression of student protest meant for civil liberties broadly. And I think... That struggle and the actual political content itself of trying to reverse cuts to staff, trying to reverse the austerity, trying to get fully funded and free education, trying to fight for a more democratic university, were pretty closely intertwined. And we were really able to convey that to national media, to the mainstream media, and get that message out into the world. Well, you're getting those issues out there, aren't you? It's yeah, It's not sure. that uh, falling victim to that media narrative of a bunch of dirty students getting basically put in their place by police. None of that sentiment about getting a job. So that's the challenge within the political climate at the moment. In a more traditional sense, protesting was the domain of the lefty. These days, there seems to be a bit of a spectrum in terms of what political action looks like. So there's not necessarily that mortgage that a lefty would have on political action, street demonstration, and all that sort of thing. So from there, I suppose it's all the more important to, to definitely get a concrete sense of what those issues are and get that out there and having that real reasoned presentation over what people are out and about doing and what they're there for. Yeah. Without a doubt, the left doesn't have a monopoly on protesting anymore. In a sense, that's bad. In a sense, it's good. It's bad because obviously we don't want to platform the, the type of views that 
some of these protesters are putting out into the world. But at the same time, we're able to win those political arguments a lot more effectively because there's a weak and quite asinine counter-argument that's coming from other people. And in terms of the broad discourse, we're able to frame ourselves as actually the more reasonable and better equipped people, people who have a real plan for what society looks like and a plan to move society and to move history forward. I think you guys have got a a very clear organisation strategy as well, something that's very well considered, well thought, well planned. We're here to win. We want things to happen in society. We want a better and fairer, more democratic society. At the end of the day, I think all of us on the left, somewhere or another, kind of implicitly have a, a teleology, kind of implicitly think that history is going somewhere. And whether or not you know it, you are that agent of history and you are the one that's moving it in that direction. And so if you believe and if you think that there is some endpoint that you want to go to, then the way that you structure your organisation, the way that you structure your activism, the way that you structure even the, the operation of a student union is towards the furtherance of some goal or towards achieving a set of goals that bring you closer towards that end result. What's the end result, Swapnik? Well, I think I can't tell you, but broadly speaking, I think it's a fairer and more just society in which people's needs are met, in which people are able to live fulfilling and pleasant lives, in which people don't need to want for for their basic necessities, in which everyone has housing, in which everyone has food and clothing. But beyond that, they also have leisure. They also have political expression and freedom and control over the resources of society and one in which the people that work, the one in which the people that contribute the most to society have a substantial say over where society actually goes. I can't put it in concrete terms, but I think at the end of the day, what the kind of society that people like me and people that I associate with would want is fundamentally just delivering on the promises of what liberal democracy has told us that we're getting that if the promise of liberal democracy is liberty and fraternity and equality, then, then, then that's what we want. That would sound like a fair class demand? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I would certainly agree then that idea of no precarity. I think that is something that's quite a common thing these days where things feel a bit limited in short supply and also uncertain as well. If my week was anything to go by, you know, and you uh, you also combine what was going on in the US as well, uh, the potential slide to fascism that could have potentially happened if 45 got up. Yeah, for me, it felt like a very much a sliding doors moment. And it just makes you think, is there something that can be a better alternative to that? Something where there's something more sustainable? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, all of this goes without saying that the biggest problem that we'll need to confront in our time is climate change. Mm. And so sustainability is front and centre of any of these Mm. and necessarily should go hand in hand with all those other aspects of a just society that I discussed. Even just the concept of a just transition away from fossil fuels, I think embodies a lot of that in that it shouldn't be the people who have shouldered the burden of working in these coal mines or working in all kinds of fossil fuels and spending their years breathing coal dust into their lungs that should you know, face the burden of moving to green energy or renewables or whatever the alternative is, but that they should be justly compensated and that they should be retrained and they should have meaningful and fulfilling jobs that replace the ones that they're losing now. The the point that, that keeps coming back to mind is that the things that we want are by 
no means controversial or scary. The, the things that we want are kind of basic dignity for, for most people. And one of the things that strips people of their dignity is the fact that they have to work in this extremely precarious and casualized workforce and a restructuring of the whole system of labor and the way in which the products of labor are distributed seems like a very fundamental way in which people are able to get some kind of dignity. I think that might be a good place to wrap things up, Swapnik. Just that that one thing that I've really gotten out of this conversation is that I think it's acknowledged these days that everyone's just very time poor, right? And the real bastard thing about it is a lot of their time is spent doing stuff they don't necessarily want to do. It's stuff they have to do. And it's stuff they can necessarily take for granted. So there is a bit of a, an entrenched hazard there. The ideas and the strategies that I think the, the student comradeship has found there in terms of addressing and responding, I think that's quite powerful. So it's been good to talk about that. And I think the more that that stuff gets out, the better, because I think there is an amount of hope hearing that stuff. I think you get a few, uh, and I suppose this even encroaches upon the lefty set as well, that, uh, you know, student activists, naive people, I haven't seen the real world, but you're coming up with some very real ideas, what is very much highly ever-changing world. Yeah, to, to finish off, I, I would like to say that none of this has ever come about by myself or other people working alone. In fact, a vast amount of credit the, the lion's share of credit should go to those people that were at every organising meeting, those people that were putting together the proposals, those people that were putting together the Facebook pages and putting together the, the graphics that go with the Facebook pages, that were reaching out to staff, that were reaching out to the unions. All of those people deserve credit for this resurgence of the student movement at, at the University of Sydney. Hopefully next year that's something that I'm able to take onwards and to take even to a national scope. And actually, not just fight for the sake of fighting, but fight to win. All right. Keep an eye on that trimester idea, though. I will do. All right. And also, um, yeah, the more that you can continue to mythalize the banks and occupation, please, the better. <laughs> I will do that. Um, too. Like, I've got big guns, all right? <laughs> yeah. Big guns. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Swapnik. I've had a lot of fun doing this. And yeah, like I said before, I feel a, an amount of hope hearing the stories here with uh, what student activists are doing these days. Thanks, Swapnik, and catch you later. Thanks for having me.